Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, an immersive haunted house experience for blind thrill seekers. We'll find out more about that in about a half an hour. But first, Omaru Balde has lived and worked in eight different countries. He speaks 12 different languages, and he knows a great deal about what it's like to move to a new place and to adjust to a new environment. These are skills that serve him well as the director of the Dubuque Multicultural Family Center, a job he's doing while he pursues a Ph.D. at the University of Northern Iowa. He's also an adjunct instructor at Wartburg College, where he teaches a course called Global Citizenship. His journey to this place has been long and difficult, and now he's investing in the success of young people and in making Iowa a more welcoming place for people of all backgrounds. He'll be giving the keynote address at the Dubuque branch of the NAACP Freedom Fund Banquet on November 6th, and he is with me now. Hello, Omaru. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And I I do want to start with your personal story, because... Your journey starts so very early when you were sent away from home at the age of six. Can you tell me about that time? Yes, yes. Um, I was born and raised in Guinea-Bissau in West Africa to a traditional African Muslim. So in their culture, they basically give the firstborn to a religious scholar. Um, In exchange, they get the blessings for the entire family. So... When I was given away, it was for the purpose of learning the traditions of uh, the religion and the culture. But turns out it's more of a child slavery kind of thing um, because this religious scholar had more than 100, uh, close to 200 uh, other children. Some of them were not kids anymore, just grew up under him, um, doing all kind of labor, hard work, and and kept in <laughs> captivity. You could not leave. Uh, kind of, yeah. You could not leave. Mostly because you are, this person owns you now. You are basically a gift to him. There is no other place to go. Um, and yes. you mentioned, I mean, it, that that is the definition of slavery. Right, You exactly. were kept yeah. in captivity. You right. were not paid for your labor. Right, no, no. You escaped from those circumstances when you were 12 years old. Yes. What happened then? Yes, I decided to run away, and um, I went back to my parents, uh, who lived in the capital city, Um, but my dad was afraid to take me back. Um, He wanted me to go back, and I had to get permission from this scholar to come home. Otherwise, they were afraid he would curse the family. Um, And so I ended up in the streets because I was not willing to go back uh, to that life. Um, until I was found and taken in by uh, by an uncle who also was kind of disowned by the family for uh, studying in in uh, Russia at the time because we did not have uh, post secondary education uh, in the country and so he came back with a Russian wife <laughs> white and his mom was like no. <laughs> We are not uh, uh, falling for that. And so, but he ended up just living his life, became very successful. So he is, uh, my uncle was uh, the one who sent me to school. Um, and I was 12, of course, uh, the first time I saw the inside of a classroom. Wow. So, so yeah. you, 
up until that point, you had had no formal education? No, not at all. Yeah. But you didn't stay with your uncle for very long. No, I just was, uh, as a kid at the time, I was not used to anyone basically showing me that they cared. But um, I was, I stayed for about two years because at age 14, I just left school and was recruited into um, a military junta, not really as a soldier, but but, um, uh, as a kid that, we call them the message kid, message boys, okay. basically like messengers. They would send us to go do all kind of things, the soldiers, uh, and we would just come back and get some food and sit with them and learn uh, what it means to be a man and how to be a man. Because the whole idea was, if you have uh, you are in a uniform, nobody messes with you and no one tells you to do. And that's exactly what I wanted to hear at the time. Um, That meant freedom. Right. (laughs) And they were grooming you to be a soldier. Yes, exactly. Yes. When did you leave that situation? Um, We had a civil war uh, in Guinea-Bissau in uh, in 98. Um, And so right before the civil war started, we already knew that it was going to happen. And at the time... My parents didn't even know I was still in the country. Uh, but uh, the first week into the war, um, I, myself and a couple of other friends decided to, to leave. But I was the only one who made it out because one of them was captured, the other was shot. And so I made it out, um, ended up in Senegal, um, the neighboring country. Uh, but since we have an embassy there, um, I was there for a whole month. Um, then figured they were looking for us, the younger people who escaped, and I did not feel safe there. So I left and made my way to the Middle East, where I ended up in Egypt. Um, yeah, and, Alone. How old were yeah, you at this point? I was, I left at, in the summer before I turned 18, and so I made it to Egypt when I was 18 years old. Wow. Yeah. And education is such an important part of your journey. Mm-hmm. You had those that time in school yeah. really from age 12 to 14. Had you had, had any other schooling? No, not at that time. But when I got to Egypt, um, I, I got lots of help. Um, I joined the Al-Azhar University's high school kind of section of the university. And so that is where I finished um, high school. And I figured that I was going to school for free, and it kind of saved my life. So um, I went on to getting a, uh, my BA, undergrad in languages and translation, basically English literature, um, and then moved on to doing a master's in philosophy and comparative religion. Um, my interest in religion uh, came out of my experience as a kid because it was all about religion. I thought all my experience was based on religion but during my master's program I uh, I learned that it was actually not it was just one man taking advantage of other people abusing and, his yes, power exactly in the name right. of religion right yes yes you clearly fell in love with education yes. and with learning can you tell me a little bit about your thought processes as as you were pursuing these degrees in Egypt what what was driving you absolutely um to me um, as I said education saved my life and um, I 
living in Egypt, I lived with people from all over the world. People came to Al-Azhar to learn. Um, at some point, um, I felt I started being active in the community um, in the student organizations because I saw a different uh, treatment between the African students in Al-Azhar and uh, the Asian and Eastern Europeans because we had lots of Bosnians, uh, roommates from Kyrgyzstan um, that I lived with, they could take science classes. Africans could not. Mm -hmm. They were uh, considered, you came here to study religion so you can go back and become ambassadors of Islam in the world. Um, I left Egypt and went to Saudi Arabia and it was kind of the same treatment. So then I decided to just come back because Egypt <laughs> had more options, even though I was still not the best. But um, I was a little more, I had more freedom to be active um, because I saw that this is something that a lot of people take for granted. And I did not have it as a kid. Um, so I'm going to take it <clears throat> I'm going to take it all in and uh, just do my best. Make the most out of that right. situation. Yeah. When did you decide and and how was it possible for you to come to the United States? Yeah, um, I was working on my master's in Egypt. Um, we finished my final semester um, and then there was a student protest uh, on campus uh, in Al-Azhar. Um, and so I went up there and was talking to the students. It was, I think, an anniversary of the assassination of Yasser Arafat. And I went on the podium to let the African students know, listen, this is not our problem <laughs> because it's very easy to pick on one of us. Um, I was telling them we should not be part of this. Let's get out of here. And then um, a reporter captured a picture of me on the podium. And so after that... Um, I got arrested, and uh, they told me um, I was accused of being politically active and mobilizing students to protest. I was like, no, that is not the case. So they asked me to leave the country um, before even commencement. Huh. Um, so I I wanted to go to Portugal. I could not get a visa, um, and I decided to take the Moses route. <laughs> I um, crossed over uh, to Israel through Sinai, the desert. So um, it took me about three months, uh, myself and another friend, to uh, cross the desert into Israel. Wow. And that was a, hot, a whole other story and experience. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that must have been dangerous. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, it's not what we thought because we thought we gave money to a guy who, pre, uh, who claimed that he was a driver for one of the um, uh, diplomatic missions in Egypt. And uh, turns out um, he took us on a ride across the Suez Canal uh, into the desert. And as soon as we got to, we crossed the canal like a few miles later, um, two pickups, uh, pickup trucks pulled up real fast. And they asked us to get out of the car. And we jumped into these pickups. Um, they made us lie down and covered us with heavy blankets and put rocks on us, uh, and they drove as fast as they could. We, I believe we drove about three hours up and down, turning around. We had no idea where we were. Uh, apparently, we were sold. So uh, we were sold to some smugglers who also ended up uh, selling me to traffickers and took my friend to a different place. And so... Um, 
these traffickers were they had other groups of people including um women from eastern europe um i got close uh, with some of these people there were africans asians and eastern europeans in the group um i already knew that these kind of things were happening and at the time it was the most dangerous time of uh, uh to be in sinai yeah. so We're going to have to take a short break, and uh, in a moment, we'll find out how you gained your freedom yet again and came to Iowa. I'm talking with Omaru Balde. He is the director of the Dubuque Multicultural Family Center. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest right now is Omaru Balde. He's lived and worked in eight different countries. He speaks 12 different languages. He is the director of the Dubuque Multicultural Family Center. He is pursuing his Ph.D. at the University of Northern Iowa. He's also an adjunct instructor at Wartburg College. And... He'll be giving the keynote address at the Dubuque branch of the NAACP Freedom Fund Banquet on November 6th. We've been focusing, though, so far on your personal story, Omaru, which is so remarkable. And and for people who are just joining us, you were sold into child slavery, basically. At the age of six, you were growing up in Guinea-Bissau. Your journey takes a lot of twists and turns. And just before the break, you were once again trafficked. Your freedom was once again taken away from you while yes. you were trying to um, seek seek uh, more freedom and, and to go to somewhere where you would be treated better as an individual instead of being discriminated against right. so much. Um, so you were in the desert traveling to Israel and you had then sold to some smugglers. Tell me what happened. How did you get free? Yes. um, With the smugglers, I was put with another group of people that they were smuggling. And uh, uh, about two months into that captivity, they, um, I realized I need to let the to be smart, and so I told them that listen, I can communicate with these uh, other groups of uh, the women because I knew by talking to these women that they were uh, brought there by a network, and so these smugglers wanted more money, uh, but they couldn't communicate with them. And at the time, I spoke English, so I talked to these girls, and they saw me. They the smugglers saw me talking to them, and they're like, "Oh, you can understand their language." I said yes. Okay, if you make them give us more money, pay us more money, we will let you go. And so I told them, okay, I will do that. I talked to them. They, uh, in fact, asked for uh, uh, their network to pay more the money that the smugglers were asking for. 
So once they got that first payment, they trusted me and uh, uh, they started treating me like one of them, just using me to translate all the time. Um, and that is how I gained that trust. And I would go with them to the border. They crossed these uh, groups over and bring me back with them. Uh, they decided they wanted to keep me until one day I saw the opportunity. Um, I went with a group. I was the first to cross over um, because they would, at the time, this was 2004, um, the border, uh, part of the border between Israel and, and, um, and Egypt was barbed wires, not a wall or a fence. So they would cut the wires and we cross over. So this day, um, I crossed with the first group and I refused to, to come back. And they could not yell or shout. And so um, when we started running, the Israeli border guards, uh, they shot up. Their, they have these kind of uh, big flashlights that they shoot out in the skies. And it was so bright. Um, but the women knew that there was a truck waiting for them, a kind of semi-truck waiting for them. And so I just followed them. We got on this truck and it got us successfully into Tel Aviv, wow. Israel. Yeah. How did you come to the United yeah. States? Um, in Israel, when I got there, I uh, found um, some people, uh, three guys who went to Israel as evangelists, and then there were uh broke down in Guinea-Bissau, they decided to stay. They didn't want to go home. Um, I found them, and they took me in. I stayed with them, found me a job uh, washing dishes at a restaurant, which I did for uh, 25 days, uh, night shift, that on my 25th day on the job, I'm coming home, the immigration police stopped me. They asked for documents, said, well, I don't have any, and they took me to detention. Um, Luckily, they put me with uh, juvie, juniors, um, uh, detention, not with adults uh, to get me deported. And so when I got there, there were so many other uh, kids and accompanied minors. I asked um, some of them how long they were there. Some said months, some said years. I was like, yeah, I can't do that. Um, but I already had done my research. I knew what the reason they were here for this long is because most people in Israel did not know about this. Um, so I, I knew how to get attention. So I uh, organized a hunger strike. Wow. I told them we are not eating any food if we want to get out of here. Um, we went about a week, myself and two other um, young people from Darfur, uh, just causing trouble. We wouldn't let anybody sleep at night. So they came. Um, the chief, the judge uh, came down one day because he heard about what was going on. And he took me to his office um, in the uh, this kind of detention center, um, asked me, do you like computers and all that stuff? It's like, yeah, um, I do, actually. Do you know how to use them? I said, not very well, but I can play games. He let me sit. He said he doesn't have internet. I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, what he didn't know is I was already in Microsoft A-plus certified. So I got on the computer, started doing research. I knew that, uh, that it's possible to get a hold of newspapers. And so when um, some of the – there was a nonprofit in Israel um, – called uh, Hotline for Migrant Workers. They sent some people down. Um, I took my first opportunity to talk to them and told them, listen, we're on hunger strike, so please let people know out there. So when they went back and announced that, 
people took to the streets. And then Haaretz, uh, the second largest newspaper, sent a reporter, an investigative journalist, to investigate. They interviewed us, and I was the translator and interpreter for her. Um, after they published the article, people again took to the streets and protest to get these minors out of detention. Um, the judge and the government decided that, well, because they don't want this protest to keep going on, um, for Israeli citizens who are advocating for us, for immigrants, if you want them out of detention, you'll have to sign to be their guardians, take them to your own homes. And they didn't hesitate. The reporter said, I'll be the first to sign and get you out of here because wow. I know you have a potential. And she came and signed and got me out of detention. So That's incredible. Yeah. You have you saved your own life yeah. so many times, and obviously um, there were people who helped along the way. Right. Uh, how did you end up in Iowa? Yeah, yeah. After I got out, um, I just wanted to go to school. Um, that family uh, helped me get into the Hebrew University. Um, I started learning Hebrew and uh, math uh, statistics. And then one year into that program, um, I started to apply because, again, uh, I got in trouble protesting to get the rest of the people out of detention. And so um, I actually got arrested again. But this didn't take very long because my Israeli mom fought real hard to get me out. Um, then I started applying for schools. Um, um, they, One of the family members uh, lives here in California. Um, when I applied and got accepted, he sponsored me to come here as an international student. Um, but again, when I got accepted to come here, um, I could not get a visa in Israel because I didn't have any documents. I sent uh, a request, an application back to Guinea to get a passport. Once that came, I went to the embassy. They said, no, you have to go back to your country to get the visa. My Israeli mom said, no, you're not leaving. I was like, yeah, it's, it's about education. I'm willing to take this risk. So then I went back to Guinea, and Guinea did not have an American embassy. I had to go back to Senegal to get the visa. So in Senegal, I put my application. I got approved. And so I decided to go back uh, to Guinea-Bissau to see my family for uh, the first time in, again, 12 years. Wow. So I got there, spent some time with them, and I was coming back to Senegal to pick up my passport and catch my flight. My dad said he wanted to come with me because he didn't want to miss a minute, <laughs> you know, uh, to spend time with me. Um, on our way to Senegal, we had a car accident and my dad was killed in oh that accident. Gosh. So um, I had to go back for the funeral. Traditionally, um, all these elder people in the community came and they advised me to take his place because I am what um, we call a hafiz, somebody who memorized the Quran. Um, so I qualified to take over my dad's uh, religious activities. He had built a mosque and all that. Um, I played politics. I told them, listen, I, I understand, and uh, it's all fine, but I have everything, all my documents in Senegal. I have to go back and get those. Um, and after everybody left, I told my mom, I'm so sorry, you'll have to pay the price for this, but I'm not coming back. I'm going to the United States to study. 
Um, and I came here two days after I buried my dad. Wow. Uh, with tons of stress. Oh, I can't so, even imagine. Yeah. Uh, we, we are going to run out of time. I understand that you oh, are yeah, writing yeah. a book about your experiences. <laughs> right. So when you, when yes. you complete that project... Yes. Come back, and we will yeah, we'll spend yeah. a whole hour talking more about your story. I do want to ask you, though, coming to the United States, it's with so little. Yeah. Uh, there, there is some support in place sometimes to help international students. Right. But you, you were really a refugee, and you had all of this trauma that you had experienced from living in slavery right. to losing your father in that accident. Did you have any access to counseling or support for that trauma? Not really. Um, I had used um, UNI's uh, counseling services a couple times. Um, I did not think it was very helpful because of the cultural differences. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time when I started, um, uh, I went to UNI and all these things started coming back. I was having dreams, bad dreams. In our culture, dreams do mean something. And then I would go to the counseling center. They start talking to me in West about Western psychology kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I have studied that, but my dreams have to mean something. And I don't just want to come here and share my uh, personal stories and all that. I want, I need help. What can I do? They, they could not because of the cultural difference. Their understanding and mine were different. And yeah. so, no, not really. Until um, about a couple of years ago, I participated in a, a human traffic and social justice conference, and I met this uh, professor from Toledo um, that I have to give a shout-out to, uh, Dr. Celia Williamson, who also hosts the Emancipation Nation. She recommends, she's like, you are a great person, you have all these potentials, but you're still dealing with trauma. I was like, okay. So then I started seeking counseling, and I... Uh, trauma-informed counseling. Yes, trauma-informed yeah. counseling. So that helped a lot, yeah. So right now, I mean, you're, you're getting your Ph.D., you're teaching students, you yes. love to teach students yes, at yes. Wartburg College, right. and you're also the director of the Dubuque Multicultural Family Center. Um, it's an important part of your, your mission as a, an individual right now to make Iowa a better place yes. for people who come from other cultures. Can you tell me about what you're hoping to accomplish? Yes. Um, number one, my motivation is my wife and kids. Um, my kids were born here. Um, I broke all my traditions and cultural norms. Uh, I married a white girl, Christian, and I'm a black, still practicing Muslim. Um, we want to raise our kids in a safe and uh, you know, environment where they can make their choices. And so I am an activist and an advocate for civil rights. And the only way to successfully do that is through education. And uh, that is what keeps me going. I, I like to teach people, share my background, my story. And um, uh, I bring, I take humanity first before even any religious beliefs and spiritual stuff. And so... Um, Making connections is what I, I like to make sure people understand each other, have the opportunity to uh, to communicate, to have a dialogue. Because we all can talk, but communicating is difficult. <laughs> not, not a lot of people know how to do that. Um, and that is my uh, something that I took uh, as a responsibility upon myself to, to help accomplish. Um, yeah, but through my job, 
um, in Dubuque. I, I chose that because it's it's a great facility that the city built there, um, a place to bring the community together. It's a multicultural family center, and that is exactly what I want to dedicate dedicate my life to uh, serving the community, um, uh, spreading the idea of multiculturalism, right? Because I think the more diverse we are, the better off we all are. And so that place, that is my vision, to make it a place for people to come together, um, regardless of their political disagreements and uh, other backgrounds, but just to come together and learn from each other and about each other. There's a saying in our culture that once you get to know somebody, it's impossible to hate them. And so I think a lot of the uh, struggles and problems that we see is they are all results of uh, uh, fear of the unknown because we're all afraid of what we don't know until we know it. And so, yeah. You also work a lot with young people. And you talked about how you weren't when you were 12 years old and living on the streets and moved in with your uncle that you didn't even understand how to react when someone loved you and cared for you and and tried to keep you safe. Um, I bet you think about that a lot when you work with kids who are at risk. Oh, yes. Yes, a lot. Um, I actually, that helps me relate a lot uh, with them when it comes, in my current job, I do a whole lot of de-escalation, and I have a staff that is very well trained uh, to do that. Um, But with that passion in mind, I, uh, back in 2013, I started a collaborative program with the, um, the Brazilian Minas Gerais, State of Minas Gerais uh, Education Secretary, where I go there to what they call favelas, the ghettos basically, uh, where young people carry guns and all that stuff to advocate for education, to help these kids um, because they wouldn't listen to people who live there. So I come from the United States, they hear my story, they're like, wow, so it's all possible. Um, we started that, and it it became a very successful program, and we still do it. Just the pandemic kind of stopped yeah. uh, stopped us from traveling. But so we only have about thirty yeah. seconds yeah. left, and like yeah. I said, come back when you've written your book for Absolutely. sure. But um, what do you hope to do with your PhD? What what do you want to do in the future? I want to stay in the academic uh, field to advocate for. Uh, you know, social justice and equity in higher ed. So that's that's the route I'm taking. All right. Well, thank we you. need you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for choosing Iowa and for investing so much of yourself in making this state a better place. Thank you so much. It's a great place to be. <laughs> Omaru Balde has lived and worked in eight different countries. He speaks 12 different languages. He is the director of the Dubuque Multicultural Family Center. He is also getting his Ph.D. at the University of Northern Iowa and is an adjunct instructor at Wartburg College. He'll be giving the keynote address at the Dubuque branch of the NAACP Freedom Fund Banquet on November 6th. Coming up in just a moment, we'll find out about an immersive haunted house experience for blind thrill seekers. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With Halloween just a few days away, you might notice that most of the spooky fun that is so popular this time of year is visual. But this year, Scare DSM put together an immersive haunted house experience for blind patrons. Mary Frances Evans, executive director of the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service, or IRIS, collaborated on the project and provided audio narration for the tour. In a moment, we'll meet Mary Sheets, who at the age of 90 went on this adventure. But uh, we'll start with Mary Frances. Hello, Mary Frances. Hello, Charity. Thank you for coming back to the show. And tell me how this idea came about. Well, first, first, it's really, really important that your listeners understand that even though they might not have ever heard of Iris, we travel on a side channel of Iowa Public Radio's signal. So their support for Iowa Public Radio also supports uh, getting Iris information out to 11,000 Iowans across the state. So thank you, Iowa Public Radio. Okay, what was your question? <laughs> How did you get started on this haunted house project? <laughs> well, as as all good things generally start, it was a couple of friends sitting around. Um, my friend Brian Barnum built Scare DSM with her husband, and because of our friendship and talking about accessibility and coming to Iris events, they built the physical space with accessibility front and center, which is impressive in and of itself. Yeah. And then the, um, another friend, Carolyn Jennison, um, had this idea that she's like, I have a friend who does stuff for blind people. I have a friend who has a scary haunted house. Put two and two together, and we ended up Sunday screaming our brains out. <laughs> And, and I want to find out more about that specific experience. But I do think it's important to talk about, you know, accessibility. There, There's, of course, there's been a very long journey toward accessibility. We are not fully there yet. But for people um, who have lost their sight or have visual impairment, you feel like this is sort of one of the last areas that people consider when they talk about inclusion. Absolutely. Um, in the inclusion list, diversity, equity, inclusion, disability is always the very last thing people think of. And every single one of us, if we're lucky, will encounter a disability in our lives. The uh, The option is die. So I'm not sure if that came out right. But anyway, um, we'll all live with a disability at some point. And um, once you kind of get an exposure to the idea of accessible spaces and accessible events, then it sticks with you like it did with our friend from Scare DSM. Um, we have been thrilled in the last 10 years at IRIS to include our audio description program, and it has blown up uh, beyond my wildest dreams, where we generally just read the newspapers from across the state out loud with audio description uh, last Wednesday, I was in Cedar Falls doing uh, Winnie the Pooh for tiny little elementary school kids. Friday night, we were at the Harkin Institute um, doing audio description for um, an accessible art piece display that they were doing. And then Saturday night, we were walking with zombies. So really, we've done funerals, Charity. We've done weddings. We've done rodeos, parades, um, if you think about it, really anything can be made more accessible than it already is. So 
in putting together a haunted house experience, that's pretty different from doing narration for somebody who's experiencing a play or a musical or, or another kind of cultural event. Um, you're not just telling them what they would be seeing. I mean, this is an experience that was designed to cater to all the other senses, right? Yeah, you've got the sound and the steam, and you've got little guns like blowing bursts of air at you. And um, this this was really tricky because we were going to be on the move, <clears throat> moving through the space. And also there was so much happening that we kind of needed to explain. The work we put into this, thinking it through and setting things up with Scare DSM, leading the charge on that was just incredible. And I'm you know, it came out really well. The very first question when this idea came up from one of our blindness listeners was, I don't even know what a zombie looks like. They thought the word zombie meant a cute, furry, tall, green kind of Muppet thing. And I said, no, that's not what a zombie is at all. And so we had to start there. And um, they set up a VIP experience for our listeners where the zombies came into the room and we explained how you become a zombie, and then the fully dressed actors made themselves available to be touched wow. by our listeners so that they could understand that half your face is gone and there's your guts hanging out. So, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> All right. I want to bring Mary Sheets into the conversation now, too. At the age of 90, decided to to go visit a haunted house. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. And Mary, when you found out about this opportunity, what prompted you to say yes? Oh, the fun of it, to get out and to be uh, see what was going on. I have never been in a haunted house. And I thought this was, oh, wonderful. Absolutely. Can you tell me um, what level of visual impairment you live with? Uh, I have macular degeneration, uh, age-related. I see uh, nothing in the center. If I want to see anything, I have to turn my head to the right, and I could see a little sliver of, uh, I could see Mary Frances, that there is a person there. She's right across the table from me. And if I turn my head, she disappears. Just like that, I can get rid of people yeah. just by turning my head away. So you had sight when you were younger, right? Oh, yes. My sight didn't go away until I was about 69. I was doing all right, and all of a sudden, guess what? Things disappear. <laughs> but you never had a chance to go to a haunted house before that. Never, never. <laughs> even, so, with, even with four kids, we didn't. We just didn't... Uh, all right. So when you said, yes, I, I want to go, can you tell me what the experience was like? I, Mary Frances can can chime in here a little bit, but you're the one who was going mm -hmm. through the haunted house. Yes. What happened? I First, it was that we could go over to the actors or whatever they're called, the zombies, mm -hmm. and, and feel uh, their faces and things like that. That was very good because you just... You don't know. And I found one that needed to go to a dentist. Uh, his mouth was all <laughs> out. Oh, yeah. Zombies have terrible <laughs> dental care. Yes, they do. And uh, it was just uh, my feeling in 
walk, walking through and all of a sudden something grabs your leg. There's a cobwebs coming down on you and you're fighting them away. Wow. And, and it's just uh, people are shouting and screaming at you. And I have a problem that when somebody screams at me, I'm going to scream back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she did. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> oh, so as you're going through and you're experiencing all of these these things, uh, Mary Frances, you were doing the audio description. Yes. So tell me, Mary Frances, what, what kind of audio description were you doing? Well, but, we had a, a wireless microphone. We had about 14 people in our group. And the Scare DSM pumped the wireless microphone uh, on the PA over the whole thing. We struggled to figure out how we were going to get the audio to our listeners. Um, headsets weren't going to work. Uh, we talked about doing a conference call. But anyway, so as we – you know, a haunted house, this one is a, is a maze. So you've got tight corners – um, I should also mention, you know, the, the blindness community worked really well with us. We, I had to say, listen, no guide dogs mm. because even the best guide dog is going to lose it when a three-headed devil dog comes <laughs> flying out of the wall. Yeah. So, yes. And then explaining, okay, with cane travel, um, you're not expecting to feel with your cane a dead zombie with guts hanging out on the floor as you go through, you know, just – we kept it very high and tight, but I tried to explain, you know, this room, for example, is a locker room. Um, the theme of Scare DSM this year is the old Iowa paint factory. And so fast forward to the year 20, I don't know what, and um, the world has been taking over, taken over by zombies, and the Iowa paint factory has become a zombie containment facility. And so you are a VIP going through the zombie containment facility, like a ribbon cutting, Except as you get in there, of course, there's a breach, and here they come. So, you know, we go to a locker room where normal zombie containment workers would be doing stuff. And all of a sudden, the locker, as they're walking past, I'm saying to your right is a bank of lockers. To your left is a long cement bench that goes the length of the room. There are showers to your left. But as they would go past the lockers and be touching them as they went, there was a device in the locker that started doing what, Mary? He's screaming and jumping out at you and yeah. all this stuff. Oh. And when I got uh, home, Bob didn't go with us, but he, when I went home, he says, Mary, you've got blood in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I must have touched the wall at some time with yeah. my head. <laughs> but we, oh my goodness. They had so much, you know, as you, as you went through the thing, with that storyline in mind, you know, they had a lot of gurneys with um, zombies in various states of decay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm saying, okay, over here to your left is a woman having a zombie baby. baby. Yeah. And that was that <laughs> I was didn't different. know that was possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're going to Google it now, aren't right, you? Right, right. Because how exactly does that happen? But the baby flies out and... Um, you know, the actor is sitting there kind of waiting for everyone to gather around so they could feel her, and then they hit the button, which made something weird happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, Mary Frances, you're really exercising your acting chops in this, too, right? I, you know, I was just talking to someone about this. Um, again, going back to last Wednesday with Winnie the Pooh, for the elementary school kids, you had to take your voice 
up real high, but but help them with your description understand the plot of the story, right? Mm-hmm. You really have to support them. Um, something like Fiddler on the Roof, which we're doing at the Civic Center on Sunday, you're going to want to stay out of it because people can understand the story. They they probably know the music and they bought an expensive ticket. And so we're just kind of helping them with what's happening visually. With this zombie thing, um, first of all, I don't even know what a zombie is. Is That was my starting point, Charity. And so I had to be – you might tell that my voice still hasn't come back to normal oh, no. since Sunday. Um, I had to be a part of the thing. Um, and also, I don't think we recorded it, but I'm pretty sure I screamed a couple times as they did the jump scares as you're going through the darkness. Mary, but, um, did she scream? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was. Yeah. So yeah, it we made it a whole. Intense. We made it a whole experience. We'll absolutely, absolutely do this again. And Charity, you're coming. Okay, all right. <laughs> you're going to be my <laughs> audio description partner. Um, <laughs> so there were 14 people who went through the haunted house, and of course, Mary, you were one of them. Did yes. you? Did you feel genuinely scared? At times, yes, I was. Uh, standing beside a barrel and it was calm and all of a sudden it started to shake and somebody jumped out of it and I thought oh wow I don't want to damp my drawers here now let's go on (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) obviously you had a lot of fun Mary oh yes what does it mean to you to have an opportunity like this I mean something that I'm sure you never thought that you would get to do very enjoyable uh I was. I looked forward to it. In fact, I even got our daughter to come down from Kansas City to be uh, take take me through uh, to help with Shad. She Shad, Shad's another blind person, and uh, we needed two sighted people and two blind people, and it was Shad and I and Meg and Jim, and we just had a real good time. Oh, that sounds that sounds awesome. Yes. And, and you obviously are a part of this community that is served by IRIS. Yes. What other services do you depend on with IRIS? Uh, I like the radio, the grocery ads, the, the reading of the paper. I really enjoy it all. They have been so good right. and friendly. So the volunteers with Iris really keep you connected. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Well, Mary, thank you so much for for talking with us, okay. and I'm I'm glad you're okay after oh. <laughs> that intense journey. Yeah. The one that really got me was when I think we were going through a birth canal with a. Oh, 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 oh okay. Oh. <laughs> let me let me let me help out here okay. quickly. Um, so it's a giant thing filled with air, kind of like a nylon airbag that's maybe 20 feet long and and eight feet tall. So you have to put your belly up against the wall and sidestep through this, and it feels like you're in a colon or a birth canal. Yeah. And it's this, it it's totally removes all your senses. And then, of course, as you're sliding along, there's a plexiglass window in the wall with a, with a zombie in it to jump out at you. But... Um, but we had to go through that squeezy thing twice, twice. Um, and nobody bailed out. I nope. warned them, and we all did it. I did see a wheelchair in case it's a, if somebody needed yep. one yep. was sitting yep. out beside it. Yeah, I know we it's were... good to take precautions. <laughs> yeah. We were ready, but yeah, it was cool. Oh, wow. Well, Mary Sheets, thank you so much for telling us about your experience. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
Mary Sheets is 90 years old, and she is legally blind, and she is one of the people who went through the haunted house from Scare DSM and Mary Frances uh, Evans of Iris before you leave. Um, uh, obviously, this was a whole lot of fun for, for Mary to have this opportunity. Tell me why it's so important for you to provide audio description. I know this is one of the relatively new services for Iris to provide audio description at these cultural events, a haunted house or a play or or whatever it may be. Why is that such an important part of your mission? We deliver equal access. Um, And equal might not mean the same. But, for example, if you took your mom to a show, your mom and you would watch the show. But for a lot of our listeners, you would, if your mom was visually impaired, it would be on you to explain to her what's going on. And it's stressful. And um, Iris lets the two of you attend a show. You don't have to sit in the special seats and put on an Iris headset and you watch the show and your mom watches the show with Iris and you just get to go do normal stuff. Um, One of my favorite ones up at Hancher. A young woman had, this was her sixth time seeing Les Miserables. And after audio descriptions, she said, it's the first time I knew there was a wedding wow. in that musical. So wow. we're just providing equal access to make people smile wherever we can. Mary Frances Evans, thank you. Oh, you know, you're my favorite. <laughs> you're my favorite, too. <laughs> Mary Frances Evans is executive director of the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service, or IRIS. And we were talking about their... Immersive experience at Scare DSM this year. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.